Welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast, the show that helps you to reach more people, help more people, and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy. This week's podcast episode is really special to me because it's the kind of episode that reminds me exactly why I started the Business of Psychology podcast. It's also the 50th episode to be published of the Business of Psychology. So it's a really big milestone for this podcast. Um, So before I launch into the interview with Dr. Kathy Adcock, where we're talking all about entrepreneurship and how the entrepreneurial spirit can help us to have more impact on mental health and how we can foster that in ourselves, which is such an exciting topic, which I'm really excited to share with you all. Um, I just wanted to announce that we are having a little bit of a celebration this week um, and at the same time trying to increase the reach of this podcast. So as you may know, or you may not know, um, the number of reviews that a podcast has determines how many people the podcast platforms show the podcast to. So if you want to grow your podcast, you really need to get some good positive reviews. So with that in mind, I really want to grow the reach of this podcast because I'm really, really proud of the content that we've created. I'm really proud of what me and the members of the team here at the Business of Psychology have produced. And I'm really proud of a lot of the inspiring people that have come on and spoken to us. So I want to get this podcast out to more people. And a great way to do that is asking all of you guys listening now to swipe up on your podcast app, go to the show notes bit and leave us a five-star review. And if you do that, take a screenshot and share it on social and tag me in. I'm at Do Modern Therapy on Facebook, at Rosie Gilderthorpe on Instagram. Um, Then I will enter you into a competition and you might just win a £50 Amazon voucher. Feeling generous, feeling flush, because it is a big celebration week for us this week. So please, if you enjoy the podcast, if you get value from it, please do um, rate, review and share it and let's get this podcast out to more people. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Today I'm talking to Dr. Kathy Adcock. Kathy is a clinical psychologist, a boxer and the founder of Social Enterprise In Your Corner. She's also a passionate social entrepreneur and she's here today to talk a bit about her journey and how we can develop that entrepreneurial spirit. Welcome to the podcast, Kathy. Hi, thanks for having me. So firstly, I think we'd all love to hear a bit about what you do with In Your Corner. So how did it all begin? So um, In Your Corner, obviously, well, I was a psychologist first, and I think that's an important thing to say. So I didn't grow up like a sporty kid who was in a boxing gym like that. That wasn't the deal. Like I was born in the 80s. Girls weren't allowed to box. Um, so I was um, trotting along as a psychologist and I kind of found boxing within a commercial gym actually and then through that joined a boxing club and um, I just really got on with it and I suppose I, I got really interested in in particular the relationship you have with your coach um, and how much they kind of look after you in very kind of physical ways like that you know they pour water into your mouth they kind of wrap your hands there's something really um, you feel very well looked after as they pat you on the back and send you out (laughs) Um, but I also was interested in the kinds of just the kind of my personal mental health benefits from boxing like I boxing's been amazing for my well-being personally and I kind of thought there's a lot of boxing for change projects around like there's this real narrative in boxing around like boxing boxing helps young people's well-being but it's not very well articulated and it's not particularly kind of theoretical and I was kind of thinking well how could we build on that and kind of supercharge it so that um I can kind of combine what I know about what works for like adolescents um to what I think works about a boxing gym and kind of create a way of working um, where we're using boxing not just as an, an engagement hook, but also kind of maximizing its therapeutic potential in an evidence-informed way. Wow. I mean, that sounds like quite a mission. <laughs> so how did you first kind of go about turning that into a reality? Um, so I guess, um, I suppose you, you've got to find people <laughs> who are interested in coming along for the ride. So I guess in the first instance, I was thinking, um, I mean, I met a coach actually who'd um, had quite an interesting journey himself. So he was care experienced 
um, and had had quite a complicated time in the way that quite a lot of our young people have. Um, and I thought, oh, you'd be an interesting, you know, you'd be an interesting coach in this context because you kind of, you get it from a lived experience and perspective. So um, I found a coach. Um, I actually, it was my boxing club at the time that I approached and said, look, I've had this idea. <laughs> can I can I do it in your club um and they said yes um and I just kind of built on I guess the people I knew um and you know like existing relationships really so who do I think are safe pairs of hands in boxing who do I think are safe pairs of hands in in psychology and and how can they help <laughs> this endeavor and um I guess I ran a pilot outside of the NHS because I just felt a little bit um what's the word I guess I felt like the NHS might just be very resistant and worried <laughs> about Why it. Would you think that? Yeah, like <laughs> as in there was a lot of like, aren't you going to get aggressive young people to hit each other in the face? And I suppose the important thing to say is no, because we're non-contact. But also, there's no evidence that doing a combat sport would make you more aggressive. Like it's not about violence, actually. Um, there's a lot of regulation involved in order to do it well and so um, I would argue the opposite but um, I kind of thought you know getting this through governance in the NHS is going to be a challenge and also it's quite hard to innovate in the NHS at the moment I mean I don't know what services people work in I still work in the NHS part-time and um, it feels like you know there's there's certain pressures within the NHS that mean it, if you have a new idea it can be quite hard to get back in to do it but then if it is successful, then the trust sort of want it as theirs. And I kind of thought, you know what, this is mine. I'm not going to battle for like two years to let you, you know, to have you let me do a pilot for you then to, you know, publish the model as your intellectual property. That didn't kind of sit very well with me. So I just kind of used the people I had around me, um, got a pilot going um, and then just really outcomed it very, you know, really thought about outcomes because I just thought, you know, this is your chance to really think about whether this works. And obviously psychologists are very well placed to think about outcomes. Um, and then from that pilot, um, because the outcomes um, looked really good, um, we managed to, I, it feels weird saying it now because three years later, I'm still like, I don't know quite how this happened, but basically we, we managed it, uh, in your corner and the boxing club managed to win a European award really quickly like for that pilot we won an award which was good for credibility and then we um, uh, managed to get Southwark Local Authority on board um, for a three-year partnership and um, Comet really funded it with quite a significant pot of money so it was like a kind of it went from like a very small pilot with really not much money to um to a three-year fully funded um, project in which we're now in year three of. So um, yeah, it was a bit of luck, I think, partially <laughs> that jump, but that's what's really kind of embedded it and got it going and it's kind of gone from there. Well, I, I can see why you feel like it's a bit of luck. <laughs> um, but also what I'm hearing in that story is that you made partnerships from the beginning. You didn't try and do this in a silo. You got into your community and found who could help you. Um, yeah and I reality. yeah and I think there's something about um you know I think you do know your stuff as a psychologist do you know what I mean like you might not feel like you do like I know we all have a bit of imposter syndrome but you do know your stuff and um and I think there's something about just kind of knowing like having enough confidence to just think you know I'm gonna I'm gonna give this a shot and, I, and I'm gonna find some I guess early adopters like I'm going to find some people who believe in the in the idea to just kind of to give it a go I mean I think you know on, on well I suppose that's quite an entrepreneurial behavior actually kind of finding people early on I think if I could turn back the clock I would have found a partner at the earliest stage because <laughs> I'm a sole director and so as much as we have delivery partners on different projects actually you know I am the director of the business um, by myself and that's kind of an interesting position to be in mm. at this stage because I think I would I wish I had it I wish I had another director <laughs> I think probably I really resonate with that I think it's really difficult to put that trust in someone else especially you know you were saying at the beginning this is your passion it's your idea um you want to own it and that's partly what gives you the drive to go forward with it but at the same time, it means all the responsibility weighs on your shoulders. And totally. when you get fully funded, I imagine that becomes an awful lot of responsibility quite quickly. And it's and it's interesting because I think early on, I think if I'd 
because it's quite specific, isn't it? It's quite niche. Quite <laughs> so niche. I think early on, if I found <laughs> if I'd found um, the right person, I think I would have been more able to jump in with them. At this stage, I'm like, I've built this alone <laughs> for this many years. So actually, what you're what you're asking someone else, you know, you're trusting in someone else with something really quite significant. Whereas if you're at the start, actually, you know, um, there's there's less to lose, I think. Um, and it's a bit easier to trust. I sound like I'm not very trusting, which isn't the case, but I think it is your baby to some degree. And, you know. Absolutely. I think anyone listening to this who's got a private practice, has got their own business, knows that feeling where it's like you, part of what we love about being in private practice or independent work of any sort is the fact that you can craft what you believe is going to be the most beneficial. And actually, if you did have a partner from the beginning, you wouldn't have agreed on everything. No, exactly. Like, it's, you might yeah. not have agreed on what those outcomes should be, or you would have had to have made a compromise. And what I love, if I'm honest, this makes me sound like an egomaniac, <laughs> but I, I do love the fact that I decide what outcome measure I use. I decide what therapy is, is best, what to invest in. Um, yeah. There's something I really like about the speed of decision making as well. Like I've, I've, yeah. I've got advisors, so I've got a range of advisors that I talk to um, about things. So it, it's like having a board if you were a charity, but it's not a board because we're a social enterprise. And um, and so I obviously consult with people and, and they help me think. But ultimately, you know, I consult, I develop an idea, I execute. Um, and I love that because actually it means if we need to change tack or, or whatever, we can be quite agile. And yeah, I think that's a strength really. Absolutely. The fact that you can move through that process, get your data back, did that work, and then make a, make a tweak to it and, and try again. I think, honestly, there'll be so many people listening to this in the NHS feeling envious, because <laughs> um, that's what always frustrated me about my NHS work. It's like we would have an idea, there'd be loads of passion and excitement for it. But that cycle would take so oh, long. It just gets killed by governance. Like, you know, obviously, governance is important. Um, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose the entrepreneurial view on the NHS would be at a time when your resources are so stretched and you are so limited, that is the time to innovate, actually, because what you're doing, you know, you can't do because demand outstrips resource. Um, but yeah, things get very, you know, things get very stuck. I mean, I suppose what I would say about the NHS is that um, I have... <laughs> a bit mercenary I've strategically used the NHS in in order to teach me what I need to learn so like I'll be 100% super honest sorry to anyone who is involved in the services that I manage but um I am a therapist at heart I I like delivering therapy like as we all know from the NHS um you can't really progress in your career whilst just seeing clients you know you've got to do other stuff and I took a service manager job four years ago um which where I don't really hold a caseload unless I really you know really want to (laughs) like it's not in my job plan so I'll I'll pick up cases to keep my skills going but I don't um it's not a core part of my role but what my job is 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 kind of you know line management leadership um recruitment um you know managing budgets designing services co-design all that stuff and I absolutely strategically did it because I thought uh, this will teach me the skills I need for my business on time that you know I'm not paying in time and money to do it and actually it's been really helpful because um you know I've learned things through line management and you know I've like I've learned about HR all sorts of stuff that I just wouldn't at this point in my business where you're thinking how do I employ people I just wouldn't know how to do that (laughs) um if I hadn't taken that role so I think the NHS you know can be very it can be very helpful in in teaching you some skills that you might need in your independent practice um, but it probably means you're compromising a bit on whether you're doing a therapist job or not. I also think often it's our NHS experience that equips us to really know where the need is yeah Um, because you see the gaps don't you You see the people that are falling through the cracks and that you know the people that we get really upset when we can't engage them and and all of all of those things I think that's really what gives you the impetus to go and create a social enterprise and and really the kind of young person that I think in your corner really works for so I used to work in um looked after children's services and now I work at edge of care so it's the it's the same cohort really um and in looked after children you know we'd have these huge network meetings with about 10 professionals and everyone would be saying oh you know I'm so worried about x x young person <laughs> if, if only they'd go to therapy or attend a meeting with their social worker you know and and 
and what it would come down to was like what do they like doing and they'd be like oh you know sport or like you know something else and you just think actually it, it's kind of it's the youth work domain if they're engaging in anything they're engaging in that kind of community youth work type thing and um and really for them I'd be sitting in those meetings thinking oh wouldn't it be great if I could just get you down the gym and see if we could do something therapeutic whilst you were there um yeah and I think there are a lot of those you know particularly young men but but young women as well Mm. Yeah, I think what I've noticed in an NHS service I worked in very briefly, actually, was that there was a, a bit of assertive outreach going on, um, but that that was forcibly delivered by the lowest qualified and least experienced people. So interesting. Yes, mm. that is not a unique position. I suspected not. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, because for me, those young people deserve like the most stellar, you know, like the most amazing service because, you know, they've been dealt a hand that is like incredibly difficult. And um, yeah, it's so interesting because, I mean, one of our challenges in In Your Corner is that obviously we're a clinical psychology led enterprise and expertise comes at a certain price point and it is more expensive than youth work. And if we look at our kind of competitors in the, in the market, they're not the same as in it, it is a youth work offer, a mentoring offer. There's a lot of volunteers delivering and I'm not bashing that, that is a way of doing things, but um, you get something different from, you know, from qualified mental health specialist staff um, and from, you know, we have clinical supervision with a very experienced child psychotherapist, you know, like it's an extremely kind of, you know, therapeutically driven model. Um, but, you know, like I'm sure when funders look at us, they're like, oh, why do you cost X more than, you know, something that on paper um, looks relatively similar? But you um, must be doing a great job of justifying that. I must admit, I'm really happy to hear, to hear your story um, because when I cost up a project and I'm like, right, it's going to be me and a couple of other psychologists and I cost it up and I'm like, what? Because what? <laughs> <laughs> we're both, um, you know, we're both part of the School of Social Entrepreneurs. I'm on the Trade Up programme at the minute. I know. Are you? you? Yeah. I'm on Trade Up. I didn't know that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's the best but you do find that um a lot of the other social entrepreneurs that you're learning alongside are running those kind of um youth work type projects and it's, yeah, I look oh, at my class and I look at theirs and sometimes I am a bit like oh I'm never going to get funded this is never going to work yeah it's very tricky isn't it because also um I think what's interesting is kind of um what does expertise mean in the mental health sector at the moment so like mental health is very sexy at the moment isn't it um which is great in so many ways but it also means that lots of people who don't necessarily have an expertise in mental health are delivering mental health uh interventions and um you know obviously lived experience is important and valuable and experts by experience are great um but i think there is a balance and and it's in and it's interesting it's an interesting dilemma because obviously you know yeah we're going to be more expensive than those people but we're, I think we're bringing something different like as in we all went to school for a long time <laughs> in order to qualify <laughs> um, so but we need to know. get more confident I think at putting forward the unique side of what we offer um because I think I've struggled with that I think most of us come out of long training pipelines with a bit of a inadequacy and there's just, yeah and there's just something so apologetic I mean about and I'm not saying I'm any different I think I'm internally like it is a real struggle for me to be assertive still which is all to do with my own stuff which I you know go to therapy for but like um you know I sort of play the game you know I'm, I'm very fake it until you make it um, so I just kind of think, okay, you feel like an imposter and a bit like you're going to undersell yourself, but how does that make you come across? Actually, it makes you come across as though you don't have value. And there's something so important about thinking, you know, I have value and I'm going to know that. And, and I think the NHS doesn't help because we've all had decades of being underpaid, like, li like, like objectively underpaid as in there's a, I'm not sure where I read it. I think it was in Agenda for Change somewhere, but there's an acknowledgement that the top of the band is market rates for the job that you do, if that makes sense. So if, you, so yeah. if you're on an 8A, you're not really getting market rate for an 8A until you're at the top of 8A. And actually because people have been on a wage freeze, that's even less. And so, you know, I don't think that helps in terms of knowing your value because actually I think the one of the easiest traps when you're starting out is to 
feel like you can't pay yourself or you can't pay yourself enough. Um, and then you get into this horrible habit of like working, working for free um, and how you get yourself out of that is extremely difficult. Um, and also it's, it's just, you know, and then it's like really exhausting because, you know, trying to set up an enterprise is exhausting. And I think if you can't reward yourself financially, then it's, you know, it's even harder. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it is so tempting. And actually, I have found it to be encouraged sometimes when you're in a social entrepreneur um, space to be like, oh, yeah, just pay yourself minimum wage. And I'm like, um, no, don't ever do that. I've actually I've answered three emails this morning from um, psychologists starting out in private practice who have emailed me to say that they don't feel that they can charge £100 an hour. And they're in London. I'm like, if you don't charge yeah. more than that, frankly, you are not going to take home minimum wage. And I know because I've done it. I've made that yeah, mistake. Yeah, absolutely. If that's your sole income. And I think what, what I love about learning more about social enterprise is being more creative about how that money can come to you. If you want to work with a group that can't pay you directly, there are other ways of getting paid, but never compromise on the fact that you should be earning at least what you earn in the NHS because you're worth it. Like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> really absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And I think there's so many, um, you know, there's so many hidden costs. I think getting your delivery hour rate right um, is hard, but I think, you know, you have to just sort of force yourself to do it. Um, and it's and it's more than you think it is. <laughs> yeah, always. You know, it's always, always more than you think it is. Um, but also, you know, other people are doing it. You know, it sounds a bit cutthroat, but I mean, there is a, you know, we're in a capitalist culture. Because I, I mean, I find this quite interesting. Because I'm not, I'm not particularly, you know, I don't really like capitalism, but we won't go into that. But the bottom line is, is that people misattribute worth to what something costs. I.e., um, if something is really expensive, we think it's better than something that's cheaper. Now commercially like for a product I don't know like a car that's not always the case um like you're paying for like brand and prestige and all that stuff but actually um that I think has infiltrated into everyone's minds and I think there is a sense that people think if you charge more you're better <laughs> which isn't always true but actually you also don't want to kind of yeah you don't want to undercharge and then have people think well why 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 are you not charging enough um because does that mean you're just not very good at your job? Which of course it doesn't. It probably just means you're very sort of conscientious and, and yeah, kind of thoughtful. And it was definitely my experience. I undercharged massively in the first year of my practice, and I I, I had enough clients, but they were often not quite the right clients. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Then as soon as I put my prices up, I got an influx, and it's never gone away. Um, yeah, so of, interesting. Of the right people who don't DNA, they don't ghost me, um, they come. And mm. yeah, it's just been much easier since charging more. And I think most people think it will put people off when actually it had almost a magnetic effect um, when I put my prices up. But anyway, we digress slightly. Um, but I think all of this stuff, this ability to, I don't want to move your imposter syndrome to one side. I think neither of us would claim that we've managed to get rid of it but it's the ability to kind of do something anyway. In yeah, exactly. You know, it's there. It's there if you want to have a chat with it, <laughs> like a little <laughs> yeah. gremlin. It's there and we can get on with the day. Yes. And that, that, I think, is an entrepreneurial skill. Yeah, because it's also about, I think, um, not... Um, well, it's about doing, isn't it? For me, I mean, I've always been a bit of a doer, Um but like actually entrepreneurship is doing like there's pl plenty of people have said to me oh boxing and mental health I was going to set up a box like these are boxes I was gonna, I had that idea I was going to set up a boxing and mental health mm, like as though they could have done it and I feel like saying all right mate off you go and do it because the difference between having a good idea and delivering it in the real world is just like so massively different and actually I feel like I'm because psychologists as a whole, you know, I don't want to generalise, but, you know, we're kind of anxious perfectionists as a profession. You know, the pull is to plan and think and read and think and reflect um, and not actually do anything because we're worried about it. And actually, um, you know, I'm very into action, you know, like you're saying, you know, that action learning cycle. Have a little think, try something out, 
evaluate it, reflect on it, tweak it, go again, go again. And that just, you know, that kind of incremental change where you're very action driven, you know, I think is very helpful. Yeah, definitely. So action is a key entrepreneurial skill as well. Are there any others that you think maybe psychologists have got, but we need to kind of bring to the foreground a little bit more? I mean, for me, I think um, I never really understood until I went to social entrepreneurship school that I think selling is actually about active listening, curiosity and mentalizing. Oh, my gosh. I just delivered a webinar for the BPS yesterday about that. I could not agree with you more. Perfect. Marketing is listening. <laughs> yes, exactly. So you so because everyone thinks marketing is this person's here and I'm going to tell them all about what I do. And actually, <laughs> it's not um, like you need to hear about their lives, their struggles, their experience. You need to understand what it is they want and then you need to figure out whether you can you can deliver it because actually if you go in and sell to them and you're not really what they want you know actually it's not going to go very well <laughs> for either party you know like if they buy you but then actually you're not solving the problem then you know they're not going to renew you like contract wise you know so I think get, getting a really deep understanding from your customer by listening to them and really being empathic and really trying to you know gain that kind of depth around what what is what is the problem you're trying to solve what is life like in you know for me like what is life like in your school in your alternative provision in your community um and then really um you know listening and and then kind of checking out fit you know like there's that that real um I really like the active planning triangle in ambit <laughs> there's that whole thing about like at the end you're always checking out fit you know like between I I'm guessing I've got this understanding of you I'm going to feed it back to you does it fit does my offer fit with kind of what you want and I think um psychologists are so well placed to do that because like that's kind of core core skills um I think there's also something about like following feedback so um I have a whiteboard upon which I write radical adherence to reality <laughs> um, and by that I guess I mean it is very easy to fall in love with your idea and you know there's that like systemic um, idea about not falling in love with your hypothesis I think it's so easy to fall in love with your business and just be like but guys like it's obviously so amazing <laughs> like I shouldn't even need to sell it because it's so you know it's obviously on the money um, and actually that is not radically adhering to reality because reality could be all sorts of things that aren't quite that i.e your idea is all right but it could be better or you know um there's elements of your ideas that really need a rehaul or it fits for some communities but not others like all sorts of different ways it that reality might be giving you some feedback that that it doesn't quite fit with your idea that that your business is the best thing ever and actually the quicker you can hold yourself accountable to that listen to the feedback incorporate it and move on I think the better and I think you know so that idea of like following feedback and not being being too in love with what you're doing is a good one. Um, Ali, who's the main guy at School for Social Entrepreneurs, you know, um, Ali Wilson, really early on, um, he said to us, um, invite objections uh, from the earliest stage. And I thought, oh my gosh, I don't want to hear objections. Like, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> like, I'm going to go into a sales call and ask them why why not to choose me like why why wouldn't they choose me what like that sounds really weird and but obviously I have started I have started doing that and actually it's really helpful because um people won't people won't say it unless you ask them like you've got to give them permission to object because otherwise they'll be very polite and they'll nod and smile and they'll leave and you won't hear from them again um and you won't know why um so I have taken to asking for objections as a way to really quickly if people just say things you know and people say things like oh so for example <laughs> I asked a colleague for objections the other day because um, we're thinking about doing reflective practice with a sports element for teaching staff actually and you know her objection was well you know the people who want to reflect might not be the people who want to do something active what are you going to do about that and I thought that's a great objection I haven't thought about that now I've got that to think about brilliant and we move on um, so I think that's also a kind of helpful one yeah, no, I think that's really, there's a few just really good points in there. And I'm just thinking about something that I heard on a podcast, I think by someone 
like really random, like James Wedmore ones, which was about like not letting your business idea fuse with your identity and thinking that if there's something wrong with the business idea, that means there's something wrong with you. Because I think that that can be so painful, you know, if your solution just isn't right for somebody and you've kind of fused with it and it's become part of who you are, then they're rejecting you. Whereas actually it might just be, you know, for you, for your particular business, boxing's not right for every young person. I don't think anyone would think that it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and in my business, similarly, you know, I am definitely not the right therapist for everybody. And some of the things that I offer are not are not right for some people. But I think when I started out, if somebody made that decision quite legitimately, it would feel like a body blow. So mm. I wouldn't ask for objections because I was trying to protect myself from that pain. Mm. Whereas I think you know, in my own work in therapy and coaching um it's been making that kind of separation that has really allowed me to do that to go in and be like why why wouldn't you want to go ahead with this and if it's something that we can work on and reflect on and and change then brilliant but sometimes it isn't sometimes Mm. we don't fit and that's okay too but you kind of have to be okay with hearing yeah and I think not fitting you know sometimes you're saving yourself actually like I think if if some you know if if you're going into kind of a potential partnership and it and it it's not feeling right for whatever reason actually you know the earlier you find that out the better really because once you've um got into something like a, a relationship a business relationship a therapeutic relationship whatever it is um, it's far harder to exit so like the more you can kind of listen <laughs> listen to signals on the way in I think um, yeah I suppose the other thing I was thinking about you know when you're saying about not fusing yourself with the business um, is also about just you know obviously it takes extraordinary amounts of uh, time energy tenacity creativity to get something off the ground um, and I suppose on the one hand, clinical psychologists are very good at that because um, I don't know what your training experience was like, but mine involved needing a lot of tenacity um, just because yes. it was exhausting, like emotionally, just all of it was just completely exhausting. I see some of the trainees now and I'm like, aren't you exhausted? <laughs> like, <laughs> They're just riding it well. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, are you secretly exhausted? Because you look very on top of things. But I mean, I was, I was an exhausted trainee. I found training hard. Um, and so actually... It's probably the only other thing in my life that has been as hard as trying to get a business started, actually. Mm. They're hard in different ways, but, you know, it requires that kind of level of going for it. And so I think obviously psychologists are well placed because um, they've, they've had to do that in order to get qualified. But um, yeah, and actually thinking about it, getting on to training and stuff, you have to find really real routes to get that experience that you need. You have to take a lot of rejection. Yes. Um, and then nobody spoon feeds you at any point in the process or, or definitely my experience was I was always trying to figure out like oh right what do I need to do yeah like what's the right answer mm. um, yeah and, and the answer is don't really know it's a unique <laughs> combination for everyone I think being a psychologist is a very strong identity and and I do think that I don't know that there is something about you've got to look after yourself haven't you you've got to have that kind of resilience in you or try and build it more if it's not there that actually if this if this fails, I, you know, I, I dust myself off and I, and I move on. Um, because actually, you know, I'm sure SSE are always telling you about, you know, the number of startups that fail, the percentage of startups that fail and the reasons why, you know, so statistically the chances are it, it will fail, more fail than don't. Um, and I suppose, you know, there's something about what do you hold on to of yourself outside, outside of the business, um, you know in your in your life that makes that you know even if it does fail it will obviously be painful and awful but you know that you've got other resources and stuff going on because it's so easy for your business to become a monster um, (laughs) in terms of just your time and your work-life balance like uh, there is something about like how do you cultivate kind of other stuff yeah no I completely agree with that and I often think how do the people that go into entrepreneurship in their early 20s how do they do that because I think there was something for me about you know I was already a mum I was already had the identity of clinical psychologist I had a lot of other identities before I took on the identity of business owner or entrepreneur Mm. Um, and I think that was extremely protective 
Yeah, some people just go for it, don't they? <laughs> they're amazing. <laughs> they're amazing. But, um, but yeah, they're, yeah, for me, there's definitely something about how do I keep other bits of me alive? Um, and I think psychologists are also good at that, you know, like in terms of, because, you know, like when you meet someone at a party, remember parties? Um, no. <laughs> and they say, what do you do? And you say, oh, I'm a psychologist. And they basically say something along the lines of, oh, that must be really hard don't you take that home with you and actually my answer is always like well not really <laughs> not really I care about it a lot when I'm at work you know and I care about it a lot as a, from a kind of social inequalities perspective and like contributing to society I want to be in kind of perspective but ultimately no I do my job as well as I can within the remit and then I go home <laughs> and and you know and it's not on my mind um so I think yeah so I've always been exactly the same actually but I don't know yeah, I don't know. I think I think there's a lot of variation in how people deal with that. But I guess what what is pretty certain is once you've got to a certain point in your career, you found a way of dealing with it. Yes. Yeah. You know, I was always like when I've walked home, it's like it's been erased. I've, I've always felt like that. Um, but I know other people who they don't maybe their mind just doesn't work that way. And it does play on their mind. But they've all either left or develop strategies for managing that because mm. you have to otherwise you wouldn't survive mm. so I do think it's interesting because I if somebody asks me what I do at a party I literally exit the conversation as fast as I can I can't although I have it. to I have to say one of my um one of my entrepreneurial learning points honestly is talking about what you do yes, including including at dinner because at the start people would say what would you do and I would I would give that um you know I would give that really slightly underselly well I kind of do this thing that sounds a bit weird da 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 da, da boxing psychology you know like totally undersold it and um and that's not helpful because actually some real you know not all the time like not every conversation you have with someone random is going to lead to something for your business but sometimes it really does like as in um early on we got a pot of money because um you know, I just went out and someone's friend was like, oh, what do you do? I told them about the business. They said, oh, weirdly, I sit on a trust and um, it's coming towards the end of year and we need to fund some things because we've got some money left over. Do you want to come and pitch to our trust? And I was like, yes, done. You know, and it wasn't a huge pot of money. It was like about a grand, but like that was an easy grand. And so I think um, being able to talk about what you do in a kind of confident, efficient way. Oh, I could not agree more. I think that I... I still struggle with it. I mean, I've not had to test it for a long time, I suppose, <laughs> um, seeing as we've not been able to go anywhere for a long time. Um, but that's definitely something that I had to force myself to learn to do and have hugely benefited from. And I think even a lot of people listening to this are starting out in a, in a straightforward private practice. They're looking for mm -hmm. their first clients even just being really confident and proud of the fact that you're an independent practitioner yeah. and this is what you specialize in and people will recommend you to friends based on that and that's where your first few clients will come from and it's interesting actually because there is that thing about ownership of expertise because you know like as a clinical psychologist I mean I, I trained in Bristol which is very kind of social inequalities informed and I guess we weren't encouraged to own expertise like you know we were very you know very collaborative no one used their title yes when, yeah. when we qualified you know it was seen as you know I think arrogant really to use your title like which yeah. you know and then actually I changed trust after I'd been qualified a few years and the the sort of style in that trust was far more expert I'm not going to name the trust but you know there was very much like when you wrote your letters the expectation was in the plan you you, you were basically saying the evidence base is this we're offering this and I'm a doctor um and I was like ooh, I don't know how I feel about that but actually you know a few years on I feel good about that because <laughs> you know what because we do have an expertise and and people will have a different relationship with how much they own that but it's certainly you know I don't think expertise is a dirty word I don't um at this point and I think if you're setting up in private practice people want expertise because it makes them feel safe and if you do something more collaborative than that I'm not you know that's okay like that's fine it's not wrong but um actually it reminds me of my mum it's so interesting my mom, my mum was accessing a health service and she had a worker who had basically said to her in a specialist service oh well I haven't done quite this thing before so we're learning together now I think that's fair enough 
you can say that if you want to my mum took it so badly she was like I've been on a waiting list for however long and the person I've got is saying we're learning together I don't want to learn together you know I I want someone who <laughs> who knows what they're doing who's going to look after me and um so I think there is something about what what do your you know what do your clients want like do, you know do they do they want to know that they're in a safe pair of hands and what does that how how do do they accept that communication? Like, what does what does that mean to them? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well. It's putting them first, isn't it? Not what's in your head and what's going to make you feel better. Because um, I remember, actually, I mean, I won't go into the story, but there was a bit of a problem with um, my title. It took me a while to get qualified. I was in a qualified job and wasn't qualified. And I wanted to call myself trainee still. Um, because, as you might imagine, my self-esteem couldn't yeah. have been lower not feeling um, great at that stage no it was probably one of the worst years of my life <laughs> um so I was struggling and was desperate desperate to keep calling myself trainee I even tried to relegate myself to assistant at one point nice um, that's like, <laughs> yeah. you can I, like I don't even deserve trainee anymore you can, you can spend plenty of therapeutic hours about <laughs> that one but I had a supervisor at the time he was like, no, you're going to call yourself psychologist. You can't call yourself clinical psychologist, but you're going to call yourself psychologist. And that is not about you. It's because these people have waited to see you. They deserve a good service and they deserve it from a psychologist and you're going to give it to them. And it was just absolutely no BS from you. <laughs> you're giving these people what they deserve. And honestly, it was the most helpful thing she could have said. It was just get out of your own head and into theirs. And yeah. essentially, that would be the number one piece of advice I would give anybody developing a business or a marketing plan or anything. It's like, it's not about you. It's about them. So think about what they need from you. And sometimes that's expertise. Other times mm. your collaborativeness is your expertise. That's what we're mm. really, we're really good at that. And yeah, expertise to be genuinely good at it. It's interesting, actually, because again, when I was like learning leadership skills, um, I went into it thinking our oh, psychologists are so good at leadership because we're so collaborative motivational in we go and um it was um again it was in the NHS again it was some sort of um it was like managerial CPD but it was really good with some external consultants who came in and really worked with us about leadership and um they gave me like a leadership profile and it, you basically you got a temperature and mine was like a bit lukewarm and I was like what do you mean it's lukewarm and they said well yeah it's fine to do that collaborative thing but that can't be your only style because actually sometimes you just need a leader who says this is what we're doing and we're doing it and this is by when and I was like ooh, <laughs> like controversial idea but you know like a few years down the line where I have managed teams you know they're spot on actually that that there's more than one way to be a leader and you need to be able to flex depending on on where you're at but that sometimes it is about just having that vision like communicating it and saying let's get on without too much debate and that's kind of interesting as well because I don't think that fits particularly well with 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 a psychology stance but it is something that I think works in leadership sometimes that's really interesting and I think you know there are it'd be really easy to come on and be like yes psychology and entrepreneurship they go hand in hand completely perfectly well but of course the reality is there's always going to be tensions especially when as a psychologist you have to be reflective so you're going to notice all of those tensions yeah absolutely I mean it's but it's a, it's a pretty it is a pretty good fit. I mean, I sometimes think the autonomy actually of the profession is also very helpful because, like on reflection, we we are not tightly managed as a profession. I don't think. Like I, I had quite a lot of autonomy over my diary from the time I was an assistant. Like it was kind of like there are these things to do, put them in somewhere and do them. You know, and lots of professions don't have that. So I think, um, you know, there's something about being extremely autonomous when you're setting up a business um, and, and needing to know that you can do that, that I think kind of lends itself really well. Yeah, definitely. I think it's not in the psychology culture to be micromanaged and that's definitely useful. So thinking about, you know, what action people listening to this can take, if they're thinking, you know, maybe social entrepreneurship or entrepreneurship in general might be for them, what two things would you recommend they work on so 
I wrote these down in order to remember <laughs> them well. So one, <laughs> one was thinking about your elevator pitch. So what we mean by an elevator pitch is um, being able to talk in an extremely snappy, so like literally as few words as you can get away with, what your business does, like, like a, and having like a one-liner, a kind of 20 seconds, a kind of one minute and like literally script them and practice them so that when someone says, what do you do? You can say, boom. And if they want to know more, you can add on um, in a kind of non-apologetic, um, confident way, because I think that's a real skill and it will open up doors because those opportunities that come where someone is, is asking you to kind of sell yourself in a very short amount of time, it's just there in your head and out it comes. And then you come across as a kind of you know, capable, confident person. So I think that would be my action number one. And my action number two is to um, think about, actually don't think about it, just do it. Um, write an application for something you don't feel ready for. So like, for example, a loan that needs a business plan if you don't have a business plan or a grant that you think the grant application is too long or too hard or it has bits that your business doesn't have. Like anything that you think, I can't do that now because I don't have all the bits because actually... Um, it is a bit like clinical psychology training, actually. You know, when people say, just do the form, because through doing the form, you'll learn something. Similarly, I think um, everything I've gone for, I definitely haven't been ready for, and I've just done it anyway. And I think the process of doing it, whether you're successful or not, it gets your business in better shape. So, for example, if there, um, if there's a bid that's asking... So here's a real example, actually. A, a bid I went for currently, I couldn't go for because it, um, it needed two directors or at least two directors and I thought okay so I can't go for that but I've learned something about the fact that I need a second director for certain types of finance and so I need to think about financial governance better in order to make myself more um, able to grant hold of a particular size so I think just kind of go for something because it will make you more aware of the bits of your business that need attention but will also fine-tune them a bit in the process of applying and I think that would that's a helpful action from my perspective. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think that's really powerful. I when I applied for the trade up program with the School of Social Entrepreneurs, they asked for a cash flow forecast. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I can't do that. You know, all the gremlins came out at once yeah. being like, that's too hard. I can't do it. And, you know, I couldn't do it. I had to get an accountant and I'd never spoken to an accountant before. And it it moved me on so far that, you know, I did end up successfully getting on the program, which is amazing that even if I hadn't, I still would have progressed leaps and bounds in where my business was because of that. Yeah, absolutely. And like, I think we're probably quite similar in that finance never gets the, the most of my attention. But obviously, finance is your bottom line. Mm. in a business like finance is your absolute bottom line and I think if you I suppose the net, yeah I suppose if, there's, if I can have a bonus action <laughs> I think it would be around finance i.e if you don't like finance just give it away as soon as possible to somebody who will do it for you and pay them to do it because they will save you more money than they cost you very quickly and actually because because some entrepreneurial skills you'll be able to learn with help and some just, you know, for me, finance isn't my bag. I don't like it. I'm not interested in it. And I'm not good at it. So I'm going to give it away to someone else. I'm going to pay them to do it. And then it is attended to, but not by me. Whereas there's other areas where I think, okay, I'm not there yet, but I'm the person who can develop the skill to do that. And I think knowing which bits of your business you have the capacity to develop skills in to be able to lead on versus the ones you need to give away. Just give away the ones <laughs> that you don't want quickly. <laughs> yeah and as opposed to ignoring like them you. I always think I get literal backache from tasks that I'm bad at that are also <laughs> boring um, like it makes my back hurt and if I get that feeling from something I'm going to give it away as quick yeah. as I can your body is telling you something quite powerful yeah if it Absolutely. feels like it's sucking your life force you should probably hand it over <laughs> yeah definitely because also you know finance people can do that kind of stuff like because I'm the same with cash flow forecasts and stuff um you know they love that stuff and they do it so quickly <laughs> they do it so quickly so there's no point like agonizing for it um for doing it yourself for hours and hours yeah um, I completely agree okay so I've taken up loads of your time and this has just been so interesting I feel like I could talk to you all day um, I enjoyed but... myself <laughs> 
but I feel like we should tell people where they can find out more about you because I know that you're looking for partners. Yes, I am. So basically, um, we are we're on um Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as at IYC Boxing. Um, the website is um inyourcorner.uk. Um, just to be precise, we're not .org.uk. That is somebody else. Um, and um, yeah, we're looking for partners. So I guess we're always um, interested in collaborators of people who are doing similar things, um, boxing club venues that that um, would work with us in terms of having space to deliver, um, local authorities, schools, alternative provisions. We're always like kind of looking for interested parties to kind of build projects and do interesting things so I guess it's a useful time to do a bit of a call out if anyone's listening and thinks oh <laughs> um I should say in London because <laughs> um, we're not we're not national we are we are London focused but yeah or um you know if people are just kind of interested in what we do um I'm always up for having a chat because I, I always think you never know where the next kind of good idea or kind of interesting collaboration comes from so you know absolutely that's another kind of entrepreneurial tip just have a chat have the chat <laughs> with as many people as you can because you just don't know where the connection is going to be yeah, and definitely. so just restate that website again so that people don't go to the wrong one by mistake yep so it's www.inyourcorner.uk and all of the correct links are going to be in the show notes so if Perfect. in doubt scroll down click the link <laughs> yeah. okay it's been lovely thank you so much for being on the podcast and I will speak to you very soon great thanks before you go, I just wanted to check something out with you because I don't know if this is just me, but do you sometimes wake up at two o'clock in the morning worried that you've made a terrible error that's going to bring professional ruin upon you and disgrace your family? <laughs> I'm laughing now, but when I first set up in private practice, I was completely terrified that I'd miss something really big when I was setting up my insurance or data protection practices. Even now, three years in, I sometimes catch myself wondering if I've really covered all the bases properly. And it's hard, no, actually it's impossible, to think creatively and have the impact you should be having in your practice if you aren't confident that you have a secure business underneath you. But it can be really overwhelming to figure out exactly what you need to prioritise before those clients start coming in. So I've created a free checklist plus resources list to take the thinking out of it. Tick off every box and you can see your clients confident in the knowledge that you have everything in place for your security and theirs. You can download it now from psychologist.drosie.co.uk forward slash client hyphen checklist and the link is in the show notes. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Business of Psychology podcast. If you share my passion for doing more than therapy, then make sure you come over and join my free Do More Than Therapy Facebook community, where you can work on getting your big ideas off the ground with like-minded psychologists and therapists. I'd also love it if you could leave this show a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It will help more of the people who need it to find it. See you next week for more tips and inspirational stories to help you do more than therapy.